0: As the great exodus is taking place, Uh, I'm just going to introduce myself. My name is Dan. I'm not Jeremy. Jeremy is still gallivanting across the Irish countryside, looking for four-leaf clovers or whatever you do there. Uh, But hopefully he'll be back next week. And I say that with conviction. So, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 today, verses 1 through 30. And if you're new to Redeemer, we've been preaching through Luke... For many months now, and last week we saw Danny cover Luke 21. And Jesus was foretelling about the end of the world. He was uh, also telling about his second coming. And there were a lot of warnings and predictions and wars and upheaval. Overall, it's a really bright picture that he painted for us last week. But that's why we preach through books of the Bible. So when we come to passages like Luke 21, we're not Like tempted to skip over it. Because nobody looks at Luke 21 and says, that's what I want to preach. Right? But Danny did a great job. And he went over the warnings and the prophecies. And it reminded us that a point is not for us to know when the world ends, so that we can doomsday prep. But the point for us is that we can be ready for Jesus' return. That we will not lose faith when the world's in upheaval. And that this will create an urgency for us to share the gospel with others, to pray for others, and ultimately draw closer in obedience to him. Someone's dying over there. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Uh, so over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus approach Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, people were pro- proclaiming him to be the coming king. Last week at the very end of chapter 21, we saw that he was going into the temple and preaching and teaching daily, drawing large crowds. And so right now, things are look like they're going pretty well. But today, we're going to see Luke shift the story to the events that start leading up to Jesus' death. So Luke 22, we're going to see Jesus institute the Lord's Supper on Passover. And I want to caution us as we look at a familiar passage because when we get familiar with something, a lot of the times we'll miss out on the depth and the significance of it. It's kind of like when you tell your loved ones that when you get off the phone or when they leave, I love you, right? The more you say it, the more you can kind of get desensitized to that statement. That's why I've argued with Eden that I should say it less so that means more, right? Hashtag love inflation. <laughs> so. Needless to say, I don't win that argument, but y'all pray for me. <laughs> but we do get desensitized to the, to things that we're familiar with. And I know that was true for me when I re- first read this passage as I was preparing for the sermon, because it's familiar, and I said, "Yep, okay, the the body, the bread is his body, the wine is his blood, his sacrifice. This do in remembrance of me. I mean, it's the Lord's supper, right?" But as I went deeper into the study, God kept showing me more and more detail and symbolism and planning that has been going on since the beginning in the Book of Genesis. So hopefully today I can show you some of the deeper meaning that's going on in this passage, so that we can see the Lord's Supper with fresh eyes, and that it will cause us to worship Jesus more. So let's jump into Luke 22:1 through 30. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking out to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then the day then came the day of unleavened bread, on which, Jesus, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, well, Where will you have us prepare it?" And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, which of of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table and my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the main event that we see going on here is Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper on Passover. And we're going to look at why. Why? Is the Lord's Supper on Passover, because right off the bat, Luke points out to us here that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is approaching. It's called Passover. And Passover was celebrated every year by the Israelites to remember and worship God for delivering them out of the hands of Egypt back in Exodus. The Jews were slaves to Egypt, and God used Moses and ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to free the Israelites. And so Passover occurred on the 10th and final plague, where God would send his angel to kill the firstborn man and animal of every household. But if the people sacrificed the lamb without blemish, painted the blood on its doorposts, then God's angel would pass over that household and the firstborn would be spared. And this last plague is what finally convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But they had to do it quickly. They had to leave quickly. And so that's why they had unleavened bread, because they didn't have time for it to rise. And so these are actually two feasts, right? Passover happens first, and then the day immediately following is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And so the Jews would often just lump them together as one. So that's enough background on that. Let's get back to the passage. We see the Pharisees and the chief priests are scheming about how they can kill Jesus, but they have to do it in a sneaky way because they feared the people, would then turn on him. Not only that, but there's another reason they want him dead. Because they were worried he would actually lead a coup against Rome and then bring the Roman army to their doorstep. So they didn't want that either. So they had plenty of motive to kill him and kill him quickly. There's just one problem. Jesus is still very popular. And one of the rules of Passover is that Passover needs to be celebrated in Jerusalem. So, historians say Jerusalem's normal population was around 500,000 people. When Passover occurred, it got up to two and a half million times. So, that's five times the amount of people. You have five times the amount of people in the city. Jesus is still a well-known and sought-out figure. It would kind of be like if George Strait went to Pampa Fest and 60,000 people were in attendance. And all 60,000 people knew he was going to be there you're not going to find him, right? I mean, he's just going to be mobbed. You're not going to get him alone. So, the Pharisees have a big problem. And we see for the first time since Luke chapter 4, Satan enters back into the picture. And so it says Satan enters into Judas, and then Judas goes and talks to the Pharisees about how he can find a way to betray Jesus. And just to talk a little bit about this, uh, when it says, says that Satan entered Judas, it is not talking like a possession like we think of when we think of the exorcist, right? The word that Luke uses here in the Greek uh, for entered is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 5 when he says that sin entered the world through Adam. So what Luke is saying here is that Satan influenced Judas, and so Judas is still on the hook for his actions. Because we even see in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, woe to him who's going to betray me. And y'all can talk about that more in gospel community if you want to get into that. Y'all knock yourselves out. So, so we see Satan and the Pharisees are putting their plans into motion, but we also see that Jesus is too. And this leads us to our first reason why the Lord suffers on Passover, and that's because God orchestrated for it to happen. So Jesus claims this in verse 22 of the supper. He says, "For as the Son of Man goes, for the Son of Man goes, as it's been determined." But I think we see even more proof of it in verses 10 through 13. Now look at that again. Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and then tell the master, The teacher says to you, Where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found just as he had told them. So, why is this passage in here? Because at first glance, you could look at it and say, well, Jesus is just doing his divine, all-knowing thing, right? He just knew it would be there. But I think Jesus prearranged this beforehand without the disciples' knowledge. So, the guy carrying water, that doesn't mean much to us. But back in those days, that was only a job that that women would do. Women would carry water jugs, not men. And so, when the disciples saw this, this would stick out like a sore thumb. This would be obvious, and so you take that coupled with the fact that this master of the house had a room just ready to go, and I'd say the evidence pointed to that Jesus behind the scenes set this up without the disciples' knowledge and The reason why is is that he knew Judas was going to betray him, and so He kept his disciples in the dark so that the Lord's Supper could be carried out and not interrupted by Judas. Think about it. He was going to be alone at the Supper with his disciples. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Judas to betray him. But that tells us the Lord's Supper had to take place. And Luke shows us here the contrast between man and Satan in the beginning of the chapter and their schemes, and then Jesus' control of the whole situation in verses 8 through 13. Nothing was going to stop this supper from happening. And that's why we see Jesus say in verse 15, he says, I've earnestly desired to have this supper with you, because this has been in the works not only for, for this time in Luke, but since the beginning of time. So if you've ever thrown a secret party or trip, and it takes a lot of planning, and you're trying to let this all kind of happen at one time, you're anxious for that person that you're surprising. You want to see this happen. You want to see this fulfilled. And that's what Jesus is conveying to his disciples here. But there's also another reason that we see the institution of the Lord's Supper, and because it's the true fulfillment of Passover. It's the true fulfillment of Passover. So God creates institutions and ceremonies to convey to us the deeper realities of his person and how we relate to him. So take marriage, for example. right? God didn't create Adam and Eve and go oh boy, they won't leave each other alone. Like, how can I make this less yucky? Right? Oh, I know, I'll create marriage. No, like, he created marriage beforehand to communicate to us how Jesus relates to his church and his bride. And so in the same way, God instituted the Passover, not just so we can remember the delivery of the Israelites, but to convey to us the deeper meaning behind the Passover. And that is, blood has to be shed for sin. So some folks may ask, like, why blood? Why sacrifice? Why does it have to be so violent? And it's to convey to us the seriousness of our sin. And that sin just can't be magically erased. So debt's been made, and it must be paid. So I'm a finance guy. Think of it in terms of, of a loan. right? Say you go to a bank, you take out a loan, and you can't pay it back. The bank can't just magically wave its pen and say, the debt's forgiven. right? Someone's got to pay it. Either you, or the bank takes the loss, or someone steps in, your parents pay it, or the government pays it. But it doesn't just magically go away. Someone pays the debt. And so, in the same way, our sin creates a debt towards God that has to be paid in blood. And it has to be paid in blood because our sin is treason against God. And treason in any kingdom or nation, the penalty for treason is death. And so the bad news is we have no way of paying it, right? And so God steps in in Exodus and institutes the Passover where he he sets up his priests to once a year slaughter a lamb. So it is the sacrifice for the sins of the people. But the deeper meaning going on here is that God has planned from the very beginning to send his son to be the Passover lamb, to sacrifice his blood once and for all so that we will all be delivered from the slavery of sin and death. And we can even see hints of this promise back in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac. Because Isaac asked his dad, hey, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's response is, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And so God was letting us know in the very first book of the Bible that one day he will provide the lamb that will truly satisfy the debt. And so now in Luke 22, we see Jesus has brought his disciples to this Lord's Supper, to this moment that was millennia in the making. And he teaches them that the new covenant that was prophesied has arrived, and that he's the greater fulfillment of Passover. It's the new covenant will be made by the spilling of his blood, like we see in verse 20. And this covenant was foretold by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to turn over there real quick. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, So at the table, Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, the time has now arrived. The Passover lamb is here and is ready to be slain. But he doesn't just indicate that he's the Passover lamb. He actually fulfills all the requirements that God laid out in Exodus for the lamb for Passover. Because you couldn't just sacrifice any old lamb, right? You had to have strict requirements that the lamb met. And so we're going to look at some of these in Exodus. So I'm going to reference some passages that talk about the qualifications. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to show you how this all connects to Jesus. These are not all of the connections, but I feel like they're the most significant ones. So if you're a list person, I'm going to list these out for you. If you're a right brain person, I don't know, draw a picture of a lamb, or whatever you artsy people do. So here we go. Exodus 12:5. God says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. So, number one, the lamb had to be without blemish or spot. So, without blemish or spot symbolizes sinlessness and purity, like Jesus is sinless and pure. And Peter acknowledges this in 1 Peter 1.19, when he says, The blood of Christ is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Number two, it had to be a male. Why? Because a male, primarily the firstborn, was considered the representative of the family. Like Adam, the first male of humanity, was humanity's representative, he brought sin into the world. Jesus is our second representative, the true Adam, and he's going to deliver us from sin. And he represents us when we stand before the Father. Three, had to be a year old. So once a lamb hits a year of age, it's considered to be in its prime of life. Consequently, for Israelite men, at the age of 30, they were considered to be in the prime of their life. Some historical figures, Joseph was 30 when he took over as the second hand of Egypt. David was 30 when he became king of Israel. And you actually had to be 30 to be in the Levitical priesthood, to be considered old enough to be in the Levitical priesthood. And so Jesus was just past 30 at the time of his death. Number four, the lamb had to be firstborn. Let's look at Exodus 13, 14 through 15. God says, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You, You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So, because God delivered the Israelites, he laid claim on the firstborn of all of Israel. And so firstborns in that day were extremely important. They were considered the backbone of the family. If you're not a firstborn like me, you can roll your eyes. But that's how it was back in the day. And so they were the ultimately going to end up to be the patriarch of the family. They were responsible for the economic viability of the family and provision of the family. And so Paul happens to give Jesus an interesting title in Colossians 1.15. He says, Jesus is the... The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so even though God laid claim to all the firstborns in Israel, we see it'll be his firstborn that makes the ultimate sacrifice. Number five, the lamb needs to be consumed. Exodus twelve, eight. They shall eat the flesh of the lamb at night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And so this is why we see Jesus telling the disciples back in verse 19 and 20 that this, is, this bread is my body, this blood, this wine is my blood. Take it and eat. It is symbolic of us consuming him, the Lamb of God. Number six, the Lamb had to be chosen. And that seems obvious, but look at what Exodus 12.3 says. It says, tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the earth, on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. And so there was a set time that the lamb had to be picked and chosen before they, they slaughtered it on Passover. And that was actually four days before Passover. So what happened a few days before the Lord's Supper? Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where the people of Israel lined up and they say, Blessed is the king who comes, comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And Hosanna is an appeal to God for deliverance. So we see the people are choosing Jesus as their lamb. Ironically, they thought he would deliver them from Rome, when in reality, he's going to deliver them from sin and death. And finally, number seven, after the lamb is selected, it would be examined for any blemishes or spots by the priest. And so in Luke 20, we see Jesus go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they question him, they inspect him, but they find no fault in him. Even up to the trial, they will find nothing wrong with him. And they'll ultimately say he just was blaspheming because he was claiming to be the Son of God. But that was true too. And this was all to fulfill Scripture, not just in Genesis and Exodus, but also places like Isaiah 53, 7-9. through 9. And there's no deceit in his mouth. And there's tons more connections of Jesus to the Passover, but those are just a few to give us an idea of how he is truly the Passover lamb that was sent to die for us. And this should be amazing to us, right? Because the amount of planning and waiting that God has shown over thousands of years is just staggering. Just to bring about the fulfillment of his word. So Moses lived 1,400 years before Jesus was born. Like that amount of time blows the mind. and the 1,400 years, he orchestrated all of this leading up to Jesus. It shows us how incredibly vast and beyond our understanding God is. But it also should show us how much he loves us, that he orchestrated these events for our behalf. All right, that was a lot of information, I'm aware So what do we do with this? Well, we start, for starters, we continue to observe the Lord's Supper. So we've left the old Mosaic Covenant behind, and we're entering into a new covenant with Christ. We're called, like Jesus said, to do this in remembrance of him. And so here's how I think about it. Hopefully this will help you all. Whenever you take part of the Lord's Supper, think past, present, and future. All right? So we remember the past. We remember what Jesus done, has done for us. That he, the Passover lamb, died willingly so that our sin will be forgiven and that we will have right standing before God and we'll be adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And this sacrifice was done once and for all. It covers all sin, no matter the sin. Hebrews 10, 12, 14 says it like this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's it. No more sacrifices are needed. That means if Jesus can rest from his priestly work at the right hand of God, then we can rest assured knowing that his sacrifice covers us. And then next we look to the future. Because we are also taking the Lord's Supper in anticipation for his return. Back in Luke verses 16 and 18, Jesus says, I will not eat or drink of this until the kingdom of God is fully here. And that's a promise. That's a promise to the disciples. That's a promise to us. That he will come back and eat the Lord's Supper with all of those who follow him. And that we have hope one day everything's going to be made right. And so finally, we look at the present. Unlike Passover, which was done once a year, we observe the Lord's Supper often. Here at Redeemer, we observe the Lord's Supper, I think, every three weeks or so. And this is part of how we worship Him, right? And it's significant. It's not something that we do flippantly. We examine our hearts and repent of our sin towards God. So Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11-26-29 11-26-29 through through For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he returns. And this is why it's also an action instead of just reciting words. Because we are actively partaking in the Lord's Supper. And that we are also telling ourselves and to those around us in the church that Jesus' sacrifice was for us. And our actions are showing that. And that we place ourselves under his rule and authority. It's a physical showing of the gospel to you individually and to the church as a whole. And the Lord's Supper also affects how we relate to each other. We actually see Jesus address this in verses 24 through 30 in Luke. Right after he said, someone's going to betray him, ironically an argument broke out about who is the greatest. And this is going to be a pretty bad look for the disciples, because in a day they're going to desert him. So it doesn't age well. But it's easy to see how this could happen, right? Because in order to get suspicion off of you as a betrayer, you start listing your accomplishments. So one just says, well, Jesus, I left my dad to follow you. And then Peter probably says, well, I jumped in the water, man. Like, And so then just escalates out of control. And look, this isn't just the disciples. This happens in my house many times a week, right? I'll see a mess in the house, and I go to the kids and say, Who made this? And at first it's it's immediately, not me, not me. And then that point, he did it. If you wait long enough, the good works start coming in. One kid will say, well, I was cleaning my room. I don't know. I couldn't have done that. Another one's like, well, I was writing you a poem. So, you know. And so the kids think, like the disciples thought, like we think, if I can just show the good things that I've done, I will have elevated myself above everybody else. I'll show my value and I'll escape punishment. Because that's the way the world thinks. And Jesus puts an end to this way of thinking in verse 25. He tells the disciples, hey, you don't seek your own glory like everybody else does. You serve like I've served you. And so he uses himself as the example of how we are to act. So how do we become servants like Christ? We can only do that when we realize that Christ has already elevated us and given us a value above everything else. And he does that through his body and his blood. Think about this. We no longer have to build ourselves up to people anymore because we inherit the kingdom of God. We don't have to gossip. We don't have to tear down others because we're worried we're not good enough. We don't have to be self-conscious of what people think or how people respond when we live our lives for Christ and talk about Him, because it's His value and His opinion of us that matters. And because our value and status is fixed, we can serve others, we can handle being disrespected, and we can love other people like Jesus does. So The last thing I want to encourage you with is this, that God is in control even in our suffering. In the passage, it looks like a lot of things are going wrong for Jesus and the disciples. We see man and Satan are scheming, and then he tells the disciples in the middle of the supper, hey, someone's going to betray me. So Why did he do that? Like, can you imagine the awkwardness and the tension in the room? Because up to this point, the disciples still think, he's the king. He's going to overthrow Rome. And so they're sitting there in the dinner, and he's like, hey, I'm not drinking this until the kingdom arrives and they're like yeah alright it's going down any day now and then he's like oh and by the way one of you is going to betray me I would imagine if there's you know disciples raising a cup they're like yeah to the king wait what? betrayal? what are you talking about? so why did he do this? I think Jesus did this as a kindness to the disciples because in the next 24 hours He's going to be tried and crucified, and all of their expectations of how things are supposed to go are about to get shattered. But here, at the supper, Jesus gives them a lifeline to hold on to, because as everything unravels from the disciples' point of view, they will remember, wait, he saw this coming. He knew this was going to happen. And so he's comforting them about the suffering and uncertainty that's about to come, and he's letting them know, I'm in control. And so for us, many of us right now have suffering and betrayal currently going on in our lives, and it's severe. It doesn't make sense, and it feels like your life is in chaos. And church, if that isn't you right now, praise God. But I would wager that's happened to you in the past, and I know for sure it's going to happen to you in the future. And so that's an uncomfortable idea for us to hold, right? That even in the midst of our suffering, God's still in control. But how can that be? If God is good, how can he be in control while I suffer? But we see the answer being lived out in Scripture, that Jesus was betrayed and sold out by someone that he treated like family. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was tortured. He was whipped. He was crucified. And he didn't do anything wrong. It was all according to God's plan. You can't think of a worse situation than for the Son of God to go through what He went through. But God was in control the entire time. So whatever suffering that we are currently facing or may face in the future, we can trust the character of God, that He is a good Father, and that He is working towards our good. Because if He can take the worst situation in the history of humankind, and turn it for our benefit, then he can take the situation that you're in today and turn it out for your good. It may not be whatever you expected, but it will be for your eternal benefit. And at the end of our life, when we reach the end of the race, Jesus will give us a reward so great that Paul says all of our troubles will seem light and momentary by comparison. So as the band comes up to lead us in worship through song, let's reflect on this. The Lord's Supper is where we remember Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us in the past. That we can have hope for his return in the future so that we can live out the gospel as a church today. Because we are only worthy to come to the table when we realize that we're unworthy. It's his merit and performance that we rest in, not our own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing your Son as the Passover lamb for us. I pray the Holy Spirit will soften our hearts to receive your word and that we will find a deeper appreciation and love for you. Forgive us if we just go through the motions with the Lord's Supper. Forgive us when we stray from you. Help our hearts to trust that you are in control and that you are good. Help us to serve others like Jesus served.